The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to Episode 6 of The Wizard Files, a special interview podcast where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. I'm Adam, and this time around we have a guest who participated in not only the Guide to Comics, but the action figure magazine that dazzled us with humor and pretty pictures. Welcome, Zach Oat. Thank you for having me. I can't tell you how many listeners have asked us since we started the podcast, when are we going to cover Toy Fair magazine? We're still several years off in our wizard publishing timeline for when Toy Fair became a thing, but you are making a lot of people happy just by joining us to talk about Twisted Toy Fair Theater and all the fun behind-the-scenes stuff. But first, Zach, we always got to start at the beginning. So why don't you tell us how comics and action figures entered your life? by revealing your origin story. I grew up on comics, Richie Rich, Archie. My mom had a huge collection of comics uh, from when she was a kid that she'd saved. So I grew up reading those. I got into superheroes through my dad. He got me a couple of his old superhero comics. Amazing Spider-Man 101, first appearance of Morbius, the living vampire. And uh, I got started picking up my own uh, around Bob Layton, Iron Man era, around the time Mark Silvestri was ending and Jim Lee was picking up on X-Men. So uh, I got into them pretty, pretty big. I was collecting them all through college. And as a kid, I grew up on G.I. Joe and Transformers and watched a lot of cartoons. Started getting back into toys in college. My junior year, I applied for uh, an internship at Wizard Press because I thought that would be uh, a good place because I've been reading Wizard since like issue 13 or something like that. And it, you know, it was something I looked forward to every month. So interesting, you note that you got back into you know toys, action figures in college. So what would you say, what was the line? What was the toy that brought you back into that world and said, oh, I got to start collecting again? I think seeing by then how many Marvel characters they were doing that were, you know, specifically based on X-Men storylines in that X-Men line, some non-X-Men stuff, but uh, but a lot of the X-Men characters. I liked Star Wars. I didn't have a lot of any Star Wars toys as a kid. I think I had Admiral Ackbar, and that was about it. But I would pick up the occasional like 12-inch Star Wars figure because they were really cool. And and when I was sh- I was shopping at KB most of the time, so it was basically whatever was cheap and affordable. I was <laughs> I was I was a college kid. You know, I'd taken out loans and I was working a work study job, but I still had a little bit extra money that I could put aside for cheap toys every now and again. Yes, it was the comics again. It was the comics being able to pick up those characters. Because when I was younger, they didn't necessarily have all the characters that they did later on. Yeah, well, I definitely know that KB Toys well. Uh, I have a whole wall full of the Shadow movie action figures with KB Toys (laughs) 3 for 5 stickers on them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We all did it for sure. So you said that uh, you're in college, you apply for this internship at Wizard. Now, when you got in there as an intern, what would you, how would you describe your early days at the magazine? Ironically, I didn't get the internship my junior year. I didn't hear back from them for a whole year. Oh. So uh, towards the end of my senior year, they said, hey, are you still interested in an internship? I said, actually, I'm more interested in a job. And they didn't have any openings at Wizard, but uh, I had sent in my samples of writing and stuff like that. And they asked me if I was interested in a copy editor position at Toy Fair. So when I got there, I was kind of the low man on the totem pole at Toy Fair, um, but there were still freelance opportunities for Wizard. It was uh, a thing where you could work for one magazine and freelance for the other. So, you know, I was editing during the day and then I was writing for Wizard after hours. 
Well, speaking of which, let, let me ask you about this, Zach, because, you know, we, we have our archives uh, of Wizard Magazine here for the show. And according to what we have on file, the first issue where you receive an official contributor credit in the masthead is March 2003. It was a Wizard issue, had Thundercats and G-Force. Apparently there's a big crossover comic, Alex Ross art. And your credited feature inside was this small little quarter piece comparing the Yu-Gi-Oh card game to baseball trading cards. So what was up with that? Do you remember putting this together? I do not. I don't even know why they would have gotten me for, to write that because <laughs> I was we had, uh, you know, there was the Inquest magazine, which covered a lot of the, the collectible card game stuff. Did you read it? Is it any good? Well, it's 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 pretty funny. I mean, because it says by Carl Kramer and Zach Oat. And so, for example, it starts off by saying, you know, Yu-Gi-Oh! was popular in Japan, then spread to America. And then it goes, you know, it has two columns. So then the MLB column is was popular in America, then spread to Japan. And basically, it's just a bunch of wordplay. Like, uh, in Yu-Gi-Oh, there's giant hair spikes are the norm. In the MLB, frequent pay strikes are the norm. Or at the very end, when Yugi solves his Millennium Pendant, it makes him age. When the Indians sought the pennant, they hired Satchel Page. It's just like, huh? <laughs> so I was like, are, were you on the baseball side or were you on the Yu-Gi-Oh side? That's what I was trying to imagine. I have no... I collected baseball cards a ton as a kid until I found discovered comics and comic book trading cards. But I I have no idea how I even got to write that. Carl, I know Carl, he's a friend of mine, but uh, I don't even remember that at all. I'm surprised I didn't write anything about Thundercats or G-Force, considering that that was the, seemed to be the main focus right. of the magazine. But I'm also surprised it took me four years to start writing for wizard i thought it was a lot sooner than that yeah it's interesting i mean like i say that's the one where it says contributor at least it could be that you know way back when so because you're saying you got there about what year then for toy fair about 1999 okay and they definitely used me for photo shoots because they were always looking for new faces to use for pictures in the magazine so one of my bigger pictures was uh marvel versus dc it was like fanboys versus fanboys so it was me and uh, Russ Berlin game, and he was wearing a Kingdom Come shirt, and I was wearing my Colossus shirt, and we we're like wearing glasses with like little taped up. And I had, I think, I had a taped up nose bridge on my glasses, <laughs> and we were like rolled up, hitting each other with rolled up comics. It was like a big opening spread to some feature article. Uh, I have a copy of it somewhere. That's I actually I didn't know that Russ also worked there. I'm friends with him on Twitter. We go back and forth about the Josie and the Pussycats movie all the time. So I love that... the Josie and the Pussycats movie. Oh, it's fantastic, man. I'm going to have to get him on the show now. I had no idea. Yeah, he was an intern. I think he was an intern at the time. So when you say they had you as a, a photo subject, but I understand that you also made your way behind the camera. Is that correct? Yeah, they uh, they had me assisting or at least being the toy wrangler for our chief photographer at the time, a man named Paul Chiraldi, a very talented photographer who somehow got roped into doing stuff for us. And he would shoot our covers. But he also shoot basically all of our interior stuff. I mean, digital cameras existed, but he shot all practical, and um, it was not necessarily something that we had set up for. So I would uh, set up action figures, and he would shoot them, you know, just toys on white a lot of the time. But he would also shoot Twisted Toy Fair Theater, the story. And eventually, I think basically we couldn't afford him anymore. He, um, you know, he was a he was a professional photographer. He worked for HBO and all sorts of stuff. So they got a digital camera, and they said, all right, from now on, the research department is going to shoot this stuff. Zach, you're going to shoot this stuff. And that was how I started <laughs> learning how to photograph things uh, kind of on the fly oh so you didn't come in with any type of training for that no no i was an art major in college but photography was like my one area that i didn't really 
you know know anything about i you know i studied drawing and painting and sculpture and stuff like that so i could i could frame a shot sure but in terms of getting the lighting right or anything like that i was like well, that looks pretty good that doesn't have too many shadows in it all right i think that'll work and you had never photographed your action figures growing up no the only thing i photographed was a custom action figure my brother and i made that got into homemade heroes oh wow it was hellboy made out of an old he-man fisto figure <laughs> And so he had the big metal fist. Yeah, that's that genius. Fisto's fist wasn't as big as Hellboy's. But uh, my brother sculpted the head and we made like a little trench coat for him out of like a paper bag. And it got in. It got into the into the magazine. We're going to have to keep an eye out for that. It was probably around the mid 90s, 95, 96. Now, did you have any particular ambition as you started working there? Like you said you were a copy editor, but did you see a position? You're like, well, I'd really like to be doing this. I think I was happy just to have a job. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life <laughs> out of college. You know, I um I knew I liked toys and I worked for a little toy company for a couple months out, right out of college, you know, when I hadn't heard back from Wizard. And what did they produce just out of curiosity? Mostly like little novelty toys. They sold stuff, you know, like globally. They they worked with different international toy companies, uh, but like, you know, like little talking plastic egg characters and, um, you know, race car tracks and stuff like that. And uh, I, I learned copy editing under my dad who was a newspaper editor so i used to copy edit his articles for him and yeah it was i just didn't i didn't know if i wanted to be a journalist because it seemed kind of boring and i didn't know if i wanted to be an artist because that seemed really not a guarantee of any sort of income so when that came along journalism that was about you know art basically about one of my favorite hobbies that seemed like kind of the perfect fit so i was i was happy to be there at the time and i was happy to to be you know reading stuff and photographing stuff and writing stuff and you know a little that i know that uh that you know people were going to come and go and i was going to sort of work my way up the ladder well, and one thing I want to get into, yeah, before we get to your, your main positions there, is I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, and one of the things you list is that you handled the Toy Fair action figure archives. So we've talked a lot with our past guests about the massive comic book archive that Wizard had, and how it was a little uh, disorganized in certain parts. But how were the toy archives organized? I mean, did the stars of Twisted Toy Fair Theater have a special trailer? <laughs> were they in a glass case? It's like, we're going to need them for the shoot. we got to keep them pristine we had one closet just for the twisted tour fair theater migos which was you know like a just a plastic cabinet and we use like baseball card boxes like long boxes for uh -huh. baseball cards <laughs> and so we'd have them and their accessories in there and they'd all be labeled on the end so we knew you know who we had what we had we had like four or five shelves of them but anything that we used that was like a guest star or that we needed for you know other photo shoots that we picked up for like you know top 25 toys of all time we'd order special you know stuff we had boxes and boxes in the this room the room was actually bigger than i think bigger than the wizard comic library it would have to be yeah but there were boxes like uh, you know a little bigger than shoe boxes holding you know some some toy lines had like four or five shoe boxes some only had one some shared it with other ones and uh it was usually pretty organized if we pulled a bunch of stuff for a photo for an issue then maybe the bin wouldn't get resorted re after that for a little while you know we have to dig around trying to find something that we use recently but uh we we tried to take pretty good care of it uh the research department usually usually helped out in that respect. Can you recall any of, like, the biggest figures that were just taking up the most space? I mean, did you have, like, Inhumanoids or, like, Godzilla, I assume? I think Godzilla made quite a few appearances, right, in Twisted Toy Fair Theater? Yeah, he, we had a whole uh, episode around Godzilla. That yeah. was pretty, there were always big guys up on, top, up on the top shelf that, you know, they must have been ones we didn't really need very often. But, like, uh, we had a lot of G.I. Joe vehicles. Mm. At one point, we had a whole cabinet just for them. We got in the Terror Drome at one point for an episode that took place in the Terror Drome. <laughs> 
yeah, you know, anything with vehicles was 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 pretty bulky. So we had some larger boxes for stuff like that down on the bottom. But it was um, it was it was a it was a fun place to go into if a little musty. Yeah, I assume. And what was the process of actually kind of the turnover of what you kept in the archives? I mean, did stuff move its way out or was it literally once it's in there, it's going to stay because we may need it someday? It pretty much stayed there. I mean, we had in case we needed it, it, it we had uh, like a lot of those old 90s lines from KB. You know, we had uh, Independence Day. We had, <laughs> you know, the shadow, probably at least one shadow figure. We had, oh, gosh, we had so many, so many random crash test dummies or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Crash test dummies, just ridiculous stuff like, uh, you know, the Robocop and Terminator and aliens and, and everything that they had, you know, on the sale at KB. We had usually in the thing but but mostly it was stuff that we started accumulating you know new from the time the magazine started so it was it was muppets and it was a lot of vintage stuff gi joe and transformers we had a few bins of of each of those and probably had a jurassic park box just for jurassic park dinosaurs it was a real crazy mix of stuff vintage trash from the 90s modern you know high-end collectibles from dc direct and stuff like that and no statues i think we might have saved some statues that we that we got in but for the most part we didn't really need them for anything once we took a picture of them it was like uh, i think we had a place where we stored them up in the archives but i don't know what happened to any of them once the once the company was shuttered i know my co-host michael wished he could be here but he was big obviously into like the randy bowen sculptures and statues does does he is he still involved in any capacity in the industry like what is his status I'm not sure what he's doing now. I used to follow him on uh, Instagram and he would and he was still posting a lot of stuff, but I don't know if he's actually working. He's not doing anything that I'm aware of in terms of creating product for sale. Yeah, because I just remember like he was like the feature guy. I mean, he was like it, like in Wizard and Toy Fair for a long time in those early days. It's like Randy Bowen statues, Randy Bowen statues. Did the Wizard guys tell you about Brian's Bowen collection? No, no, I haven't, I haven't heard it. I mean, we heard that there were plenty scattered throughout the offices, but not specifically Brian's. Why don't you tell us about that? The entire wizard bullpen was sort of a walled-in area. It was like one big cubicle with like four desks in it. And all along the edge were Bowen statues. And there must have been 50 or 60 of them. And they were all Brian's. Brian had his whole Bowen collection there in the office. I mean, maybe he had some at home, too, but he had, like, most of the busts and most of the statues all lined up around the outside of the wizard bullpen. Wow, that's awesome. That's a a fun working space, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, you know, Twisted Toy Fair Theater, we'll get into the details of that in just a moment, but known for its just off-the-wall humor, but I understand that within the office itself with toy fair and wizard there were quite a few pranks that were being pulled what, what can you tell us about some of the hijinks you guys were up to they, i think they kept trying to start a war between toy fair and wizard or at least uh, <laughs> the editor the editor-in-chief did make some sort of rivalry happen and was maybe that there pat was at one this point. time was that pat mccallum yeah, or pat McCallum, yeah he was he was editor-in-chief for most of the time i was there i remember at one point um all the the entire toy fair office got wrapped in aluminum foil everything down to the action figures hanging <laughs> from the ceiling so that that took a while to undo but, but not as bad as the time they filled wizard's bullpen with cups of water that spelled out something in 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 different colors um that that i remember that frustrated them because they had to move all the cups and that took forever because they were all like full of water uh, I, I got pranked a bunch by Pat. He would sneak up on me in the photo pit. We had a, The photo pit was in the warehouse. It was just this sort of blocked off area where we had you know our light table and so the, the Migos and all some other stuff. And he would sneak up on me all the time. 
uh, and just scare the heck out of me. There's another prank where um, we had just published a volume of TTT. And I don't know if you knew, we weren't allowed to use DC characters in Twisted Toy Fair Theater after a certain point. Oh. So we couldn't reprint any of the old strips we'd done uh, unless we removed all the DC characters. So while there were some that were like very Justice League centric, you know, there were some where they just sort of popped up. And so we'd replace Batman and Robin with Captain America and Bucky. And it, the joke would still work and for a lot of them. But there were some of these strips that never got reprinted at all. Uh, but there was one where it was in Spider-Man's house and somebody had thought when they shot it, and it was before my time, I think, that it would be funny if on his wall he had a picture of Spider Jerusalem from Transmetropolitan, like he was a relative or something like that. And we reprinted it without noticing that. And someone left a voice message on my machine saying, hey, uh, I'm a lawyer for DC Comics. It seems like the newest volume of TTT has Spider Jerusalem in it. Uh, please call my office. You know, we need to we need to discuss this. And uh, I played I went into Pat's office. And said, Pat, you got to listen to this message. I played it for him. He said, wow, that sounds kind of like Brian Cunningham, the editor of Wizard Magazine. So uh, Brian laughed and Pat laughed at <laughs> jokes. At the fact that it was something we missed completely. Brian must have been the one who noticed it. Uh, and he thought it was would be funny to, to mess with me a little bit. Yeah. And speaking of which. So, you know, obviously, in the early days, you talked about homemade heroes. Brian Cunningham was the toy guy, right? I mean, he was the one who had the toy column. Was he involved with Toy Fair at all? during your days he was a pretty busy guy with wizard but um he might have been on like we would circulate clipboards around the office i don't remember him contributing to scripts when i was there for twisted toy fair but uh, he might have been on the clipboards for big shots which was the funny toy photos in our price guide and that clipboard we got circulated all around wizard and research and all sorts of different places just to see who could come up with the funniest exchange for the characters and yeah the that's interesting yeah because we've heard about that for the wizard price guide so it's it makes sense that would be the same process for the toy fair price guide so huh now what about this process that you just you kind of alluded to it with the scripting and everything so uh twisted toy fair theater obviously existed before you got there yes yeah i, I had read like those early issues like the first special two specials uh, that they put out before it was a regular series but yeah i when i came in it was about issue 27 and they've been going they've been going since issue one yeah, and so with that, when you come into that process, who was in charge at the time, and then what was the the kind of the step by step? I assume you know script, or we want to feature this character this month, or was there a main person who wrote it all the time, or did it just switch around to whoever had an idea that month? Pat was always the guy kind of in charge, but when I got there, the lead scripter was Tom Root, who now writes for Robot Chicken. Right. We would have meetings, infamous lunch meetings. You probably heard about them from Wizard. We would go they would, every day. There would be somebody going to a restaurant to have a lunch meeting, which I don't know, probably wasn't good for our bottom line. But uh, <laughs> we would go to a meeting, hash out. We'd pitch different ideas. Everybody would bring, you know, a few ideas for storylines, and maybe one more than one would would uh, eventually get made. But we'd pick one, and then we'd sort of bat around ideas for it. And, you know, we'd all suggest like different gags and we'd usually work it out in the course of the meeting. And then Tom would take it and he'd write a script and he would also storyboard at the beginning. But after Tom left, I took over storyboarding and I think Justin took over scripting, Justin Acklin, who was uh, the editor of Toy Fair uh, after me. He was he was he worked with me at the time and then he took over when I left and uh, and was there until the end. 
And so when you guys would actually get the script together then, so then you got to gather up all the characters, right? The stars of that particular strip. And then what was your studio like in terms of getting things set up? Because from my recollection, most of the time it was just a plain background, right? It wasn't like you guys were building full sets like Robot Chicken does nowadays. We used a lot of just two-dimensional backdrops, you know, sky or, uh, you know, like a, a wrestling arena audience or... Um... Gosh, we had like a building background that we would just use for anything that happened on a city street. It was fairly simple sets. Every now and then we'd get something more complex created, but that was rare. There's even one where we shot it in the real world where they, they got kicked out of the, the story and ended up just living homeless under the sink. And that was shot <laughs> under, the, under the sink in the wizard lunchroom. It was just a simple light table. You know, we would just set up the floor and the background and, you know, maybe a couple of bushes. Uh, collecting props, like doll-sized props, was tricky. But the biggest thing was was getting custom figures made up because, you know, we'd come up with gags for characters and be like, well, we don't have that character. So we'd have to commission a, a man-wolf or Mysterio. And who were your go-tos to create those? Oh, gosh. We had, like, seven or eight different guys who made stuff for us at different times. Um, John Dunavant, Scott Fensterer. Oh, gosh. We even had early on, they had Charlie Flat, who was a who was a pretty well-known customizer at the time, make a couple of different characters. Some of the more professional looking ones that we had were like Cyclops, which was a Charlie Flat piece. I forget who made uh, Electro. Electro, I think, might have been a Scott Fenster joint. But by the end of it, at least probably like two thirds to three quarters of our library was all custom figures and not not actual produced Migos. Really, I mean, that is the legacy, I feel, of Wizard Press outside of Wizard Magazine and Toy Fair Magazine's content. I mean, everybody goes back to Twisted Toy Fair Theater. So how did you absorb that at the time? Did you know it was a huge deal that the fans were enjoying? I knew it was an important part of what we did. As the internet developed and grew, people could get toy pictures anywhere, and we competed with the internet a little bit. But, you know, the one, the thing we brought to them was that nobody else had was the humor. So we, you know, we made sure that every page had a word balloon on it. We made sure that Twisted Toy Fair Theater was spot on. Sometimes we did like two part episodes where we'd stretch across two issues. It was definitely, you know, when we found out Seth Green was a fan, that was cool. When all the guys from Toy Fair went off to start a cartoon out on the West Coast, you know, that was when we knew that we knew that it, there was something there, but we also knew that we kind of missed out on it by by not taking advantage of the offers that were there. So did you guys, to your knowledge, ever even attempt to do like, you know, stop motion or things like that? We did. We had this amazing stop motion animator named Alex Kropanak. He was actually photographed after I moved up a little bit. They had to have other people shoot TTT. Dylan Brucey from Research did it and Alex Kropanak did it. He was an intern for us for a while. And then he was... Um, I forget where he worked when he worked there, but he was he was on staff for a while, too. And he um, he did some stop motion animation for us. He still does a lot of animation now. And for, he did a, some of the shorter stories, not necessarily the, the Migo stuff, but some of the shorter stories that we did sort of one pagers. Optimus Prime dying and somebody stealing his Matrix of Leadership. And they were mostly the shorts and not the longer, more epic storylines that we did. Now, the other question that I have then is, so obviously, you know, you're very involved in Twisted Toy Fair Theater. Was there a character that you tried to work in as often as possible? Was there a toy that you tried to have a little influence? You just thought it was the most ridiculous or a favorite of yours? You said, oh, let me use my clout here and uh, we'll put this guy in. Oh, gosh. I was a fan of Mego Hulk, just his character. So a lot of my storylines involved him or revolved around him. I mean, Mysterio was great. He had a lot of great moments. My loves were Iron Man and Hulk. Uh, at least in the Mego world. So, yeah, Iron Man being drunk and Hulk destroying things, you know, without 
abandoned. I think one of my first pitches for TTT was um, Hulk Goes to a Kiss concert. And we ended up making that one much later. But that was my first pitch. I remember the first meeting. I was like, yeah, this is my idea. And then they're like, oh, hey, what if this happened? Oh, but what if we change this to this? And what if we change this to this? And I remember being kind of, oh, taking apart my idea. But uh, it was just collaboration. And it was just, you know, people bouncing ideas off each other. But at the time, I was I was young. I was, you know, just out of college. And they invited me to a meeting to try me out. And they didn't bring me back to meetings for a little while because I was probably a little too averse to the changing of my ideas but eventually uh they invited me back and i think we uh came up with some good stories yeah well i will say that that piques my interest uh, because i'm a huge kiss fan so the idea of merging kiss with hulk uh that's very exciting i have to dig up that issue and take a look at it i think i even had illustrations in my pitch of hulk wearing star child makeup <laughs> Love it. Love it. So here's a here's a question, like you say, as you're moving on up. So you said you actually became the editor of Toy Fair or an editor? I was associate editor and then I was editor, the editor of Toy Fair. Um, when I was there as copy editor, Tom Palmer Jr., I think he'd been at Wizard for a while, but he was the editor of Toy Fair. And he, he moved on shortly after I got there. Tom Root moved on. Uh, Dan Giacomo left. Dan Giacomo was no longer with us, unfortunately. And Matt Senreich was moving up when I got there. He was moving up to be um, like managing editor or something like that. He was he was second to Pat. No, he was the editorial director. I forget. I forget his title, but he had been editor before then and he moved up and then Tom moved into the his spot. And eventually every enough people left that I was not the only one left because, you know, more people came in. Adam Paddock, Adam Tracy, Justin, of course. TJ Deach. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I sort of just I guess I just outlasted people. There was a lot of <laughs> lot of come and go. Um, some people came back, but mostly people moved on to other things. Either they were let go due to cutbacks, you know, which unfortunately happens sort of cyclically. You know, there's always like an expansion where they hire some new people and then they contract when, you know, maybe investments didn't pay off or whatever or advertisements get slowed down, what have you. Was it just as fun? Like, did you did you enjoy being in that role? Was it a little more stressful? How did you feel about it taking over? I worked a lot of late nights. I stayed there until, you know, until after dark, uh, many a night. Sometimes, you know, once I got a code for a security code for the building, I would stay there until like midnight shooting Twisted Torpair Theater sometimes. Wow. But my now wife and girlfriend was like, what are you doing? Why are you staying there so late? It's it's ridiculous. And so I, I, I tried to scale back a little bit and, you know, not spend as much time there at the office as I did. But, you know, I felt responsibility and I felt like I had to make sure each issue was just right and, and perfect. And, you know, having been a copy editor, I, I would copy edit as I went along and it was more responsibility, sure, but I had a I had a really great team of people working with me, and you know we shared the responsibility, you know, pretty evenly. I did get to interview Gene Simmons, which was cool. Oh, I should have mentioned that he um we used to do this thing like a back page interview where it was really just four or five questions to somebody who was involved with toys, either had a toy or was into toys or something like that. You know, we talked to Gene about him having all these action figures and, and, you know, what he was what he liked about him and didn't like about him, what he played with as a kid. And he grew up in um, in Israel, I think. And he said, oh, yeah, I played with rocks and sticks. And uh, I guess he didn't have a lot of action figures when he was a kid. That's so great, man. Yeah, because I mean, I assume you are a Kiss fan then on some level. I'm like a Kiss fan by proxy. I have friends who are huge Kiss fans, and I've kind of been exposed to their music and their characters and Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. And of course. <laughs> just 
all that ridiculousness. Um, but now my kids are Kiss fans because they got a hold of Kiss meets Scooby Doo. Oh, my kids love it too. It's great. They're, they keep singing songs, and I'm like, why do you know that song? It's like, uh, <laughs> not just rock and roll all night. I was made for uh, loving you. And... I, yeah, I was made for loving you, and uh, I'm like, why are you singing that? You know, they're 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 12 and under. Speaking of which, because, you know, I definitely, I collected all the McFarlane Kiss toys that were coming out, the variants, just everything. I actually went my first and only San Diego Comic-Con. The only thing I bought were the four original McFarlane Kiss figures, and they were, like, a very early run of them. So I'm curious to know, like, during this time, how did you see, like, action figures evolve? Because obviously, you know, mid-90s, McFarlane comes out and kind of changes the standard. But did that continue to change? Did you feel like, as, as far as what was being covered in Toy Fair, that action figures got better? Were there just more of them? Like, what was your opinion on that? Uh, definitely both. I mean, when I got there, our incoming section, incoming, you know, where we showed off all the new stuff, wasn't wasn't that big. Um, but by the time I left, it was like almost half the magazine. We realized that people, that's what people were, you know, tuning in to look at pictures of. So, you know, we figured we'd give them more. And, and there was more stuff to cover, you know, like... DC Direct had like one new release in in an early issue, whereas later on they'd have like two or three waves of figures they were showing off. And McFarlane was, you know, they definitely revolutionized the toy industry, you know, with their detail. Around the time I was there, they were getting a lot of flack for posability. You know, they didn't have a lot of articulation. Uh, And then unfortunately, we stopped covering them for a little while because there was some sort of feud going on between Todd McFarlane and our owner, Garib Seamus. Yeah, we heard a little bit about yeah. that, where you could, you could not mention Todd McFarlane. Yeah, so for the comic side of things, that's unfortunate. You don't get to talk about Spawn or whatever cover he's done that month. But for toys, he was one of the top names in the industry. So to not report on McFarlane Toys was a real hands-tying moment for us. You know, because we'd given him covers in the past, but uh, all of a sudden he was not in the magazine at all. Some people noticed, uh, a lot of people noticed, but um, but I, I don't know if he even ever realized it, to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, he tried some stuff with articulation. He put out a couple of waves of stuff where they were more articulated. And then other companies came along like Palisades where they had that detail. And then they also had the articulation, too. And uh, nowadays it's... Everybody has to focus, pretty much focuses equally on sculpting and articulation to make the the toys as competitive as possible, because anybody who's making static action figures in this day and age might as well just make statues. I'm also curious to know then, going back to, you know, the McFarland Seamus feud, however long that lasted, obviously Garib was a figure, a, possibly a mysterious figure. Was he around a lot during your days? And could you answer for us this question, Garib Seamus? cool or fool uh he was around early on and then they got a new york office so he wasn't around as often before they moved everybody into new york and i you know i don't know if he knew everybody's names and with the amount of turnover (laughs) there was you know it it probably was best for him not to learn everybody's names but i hate to call him a fool because he turned you know what money he had into a thriving magazine empire and you know he founded a sports league and and now he's working as an artist, as far as I can tell. So, I mean, he's done okay for himself. So I, I hesitate to call him a fool. Some of the people he hired and some of the people who worked for him maybe were a little misguided in some of the stuff they did. But I certainly don't blame him for anything that went down there. Maybe some bad ideas, but it seems like he had a lot of good ones, too. So he wasn't involved very much even with you becoming editor of Toy Fair? You didn't have to report directly? It was mostly Pat? I went to management meetings once I became editor, I believe. But he wasn't necessarily there for them. The president at the time was Fred Pierce. 
uh, who later went on to Valiant. Uh, I think he came from Valiant, and then he later went back to Valiant. Oh. And he was the guy who would head up those meetings. But I was there for those. Uh, I wasn't there for the one where Pat McCallum threw the dummy off the roof and everybody ran to the window to see what had happened. <laughs> that was that was before my time. But um, yeah, you know, I, I got to I got to hang around upstairs a little bit more once I was editor. Upstairs was where all the business types were. Okay, so now if you had to look back over the Toy Fair era of your career, is there like a shining moment? Whether it was wow, I can't believe I got to meet this person because I was there, or this was just a great issue of the magazine because I remember this specific feature. What, what can you tell us about the highlights? I, I'm not I'm not like a gigantic wrestling fan, but the two things we did as a staff would we we'd get together to play Halo in Pat's office, and we'd get together at Pat's house to watch uh, WrestleManias and stuff like that. Even just a weekly wrestling show sometimes. But I met Jerry the King Lawler, and I met Jim J.R. Ross, the announcer, and I yeah. met Al Snow, uh, who was one of my favorite wrestlers at the time. Did he bring head? Did he have head with him? <laughs> yeah, he, he. I don't know if he had head with him at the at the cocktail party we went to at like the WWE restaurant in New York, but it was for Toy Fair, New York Toy Fair. And I got to meet them and get my get pictures signed and pictures taken with them, which was really fun. Yeah, Jerry, I mean, he's, he's you know, he's literally royalty of, of wrestling. So yeah. it was really great to meet him. I met a bunch of wrestlers going through, going through the Jack Specific showroom. There were issues that I was happier with than others, but one thing that came out that was that really, you know, made me look back at my time and say, oh, well, this, this is time well spent was the 10th anniversary volume of Twisted Torpair Theater. And it was like the 25 top Twisted Torpair Theaters, I think as voted on by fans. I don't remember if the Kiss one was in there, but you know, there were definitely a lot of strips in there that I contributed to. And, you know, they had our commentary on them and there was an article about how TTT was created. And some of my storyboards were reprinted, and I was pretty proud of the volume, which I don't remember how much editorial oversight I had over it, because a lot of those were handled by the specials department, which was sort of a different section of the of the company. But it was a it was a really cool edition of something that that I'd worked on for you know several years at that point. So it was cool that it existed. That's awesome. So what can you tell us then? Because you said you know Justin took over for you after you left. So what led to your departure from Toy Fair, and then what opportunities? did it open up for you in your future endeavors? What can you tell us about what you're doing now? Like I said, there's a lot of turnover and it got so that a lot of the people that I liked had left. And I don't want to say I saw writing on the wall or anything like that, but it certainly made me nervous about, you know, so many people coming and going and having to purge every now and again. And, you know, I, I, I worried that I might eventually be one of them. And so I started looking around for other jobs. And also I got married and my wife was expecting our first. So I was thinking about, you know, my family. So I looked around for jobs and I found one at Bravo, you know, the network. They had a right. website called Television Without Pity, uh, which was all TV reviews and humor and making fun of TV shows. And I was going to say, was Mr. T involved with no uh, pity? No, he, he, was, <laughs> he was not, but it was um, it was very much making fun of stuff and criticizing stuff. And uh, I got hired as like a film critic and humor writer and stuff. And, you know, they, they actually tried to get me to stay. And they're like, oh, we'll give you a raise and stuff like that. I'm like, ah, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I got this great opportunity and I'm going to take it. But I, at the time, Justin, who was a good a good friend of mine, he had left already. But when they were looking for people to come back, I had gotten some rumblings that Justin wasn't happy. So I suggested that they approach him about coming back to run Toy Fair. And he did. And he ran it till it went digital. And then he ran it until they closed it down. Speaking of which, when you left, did you get to take any mementos with you? Have you held on to anything from those days? Right in front of me was my farewell gift 
from the staff, which was a uh, an Iron Man action figure from the first movie, um, which had just come out. They got someone to sculpt my head on top of it. So it was <laughs> me wearing the Iron Man armor. So I still have that on my desk. And I also have um, me as a mini-me, uh, you know, those little three-inch posable block figures, which we did for a feature. We had them make up different characters as mini-mates, and then he made up ones of, uh, of me and Justin as well. So I still have both of those custom figures from when I was there. Oh, that's so great. So tell us a little bit about what you've been doing for quite a few years now, who you're working for in the toy industry. Uh, after a couple of years of television without pity, I heard about an opening at Diamond Select Toys, which was a company I'd covered a lot at Toy Fair. And they obviously make a lot of Marvel stuff, Marvel Select, statues, busts, but they have a lot of other fun licenses as well. Godzilla, Bruce Lee now. We just started doing stuff based on The Crow. Anyway, they, they have a lot of fun licenses and uh, they make a lot of great products. Mini Mates are, are one of my favorites. And I applied for the job and I, you know, I, I knew the president a little bit and I knew some of the other people on staff a little bit because, you know, we'd gone through their showroom a bunch and they uh, gave me a shot. And uh, so I do marketing for them. I do PR. I do uh, social media. I do the forums. I do copywriting for the catalog and the packaging and stuff like that. So, and I do press interviews. So I'll talk to all the reporters and send them review samples and things like that. And it's a great job. I've been here for nine years. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's wonderful that you could graduate, you know, from just covering it in a magazine and kind of making some yuck yucks with old toys to creating some of the top of the line stuff out there in the industry. I mean, I recall, you know, very early days of Diamond Select, but there was one figure that was a recreation of Web of Spider-Man number one with the, you know, the black costume Spider-Man, but it had like the gargoyle ledge set, you know, that you could put together and have him on there. I was just like, wow, these guys do it right. Their statue pieces are really great. We've started making sculptures out of PVC instead of resin. Uh, we still do resin statues and everything, but we've started making this line of PVC ones that are like $50 retail, and it's um, it's a very affordable way to collect statues. But the designers they have for those, Caesar Antomelli is a designer of a lot of them, Nelson Asensio, uh, and they do just these amazing designs, and then we have these great sculptors who can execute them. They, we have some really talented people working for us. You know, Zach, really, really appreciate you making the time. And can you tell people where they can find you online if they want to follow and get some updates of cool projects you're working on? Sure. Uh, they can follow me on Instagram. Uh, I'm Zach Oat, Z-A-C-H-O-A-T on Instagram. Uh, I think I'm also Zach Oat on Twitter. I don't go there as often, but uh, they can look for my stuff there, too. And I post stuff on our DST Twitter all the time, Collect DST. And you can follow Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics, so that you don't miss all the exciting content that we have coming your way. We bring you a new episode every Wednesday, whether it is a mini-episode or one of our main shows. And of course, also this month, we are bringing you our review of Sam Raimi's Darkman. Yes, just in time for Halloween. So we hope that you will join us, stay involved, and until next time, we're closing the file on Toy Fair. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.